BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You are now tuned in to the Asian Madness Podcast a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, mysterious, morbid, and odd from the other side of the world. I'm your host, Jessica. Please sit back, relax, and let's dive into this week's topic. Welcome to the last episode of my so-called October anniversary collection. I've had a great time extending my celebrations because I'm very extra like that. Before I begin, I would like to play a promo for you guys. Take a listen. My name is Andy. I am the writer and the host of the No Remorse podcast. No Remorse is a British true crime podcast which tells the disturbing stories of some of Britain's worst killers. No Remorse is a no-holds-barred show, so you can expect graphic descriptions of extreme violence. It is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Each episode will focus on one offender, or sometimes multiple offenders, who have committed crimes which have shocked the nation. Psychopaths, sociopaths, savages, serial killers, spree killers, and everything in between will be explored in great detail. You can find No Remorse on all major podcast providers, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So that was Andy from the No Remorse podcast. He covers crimes from the UK, and as he said himself, he will not spare you the gory details. So listeners, you better beware. But then again... I highly suggest you all go subscribe and take a listen because it might just be what you're looking for. So I have one last round of birthday messages I would like to play for all of you. Here goes. Hey Jessica, it's Justin from Mysterious Circumstances and Rev96. I just got to say I'm very proud of you for hitting your year in podcasting. Congratulations and happy birthday been cheering you on since before you even started the podcast and now that you've hit this year uh i hope for many many more you do great work and put out great content you work very hard at it and it doesn't go unnoticed so happy birthday hey jessica it's tanya todd just want to wish you a happy anniversary for your podcast it's been great listening to you and uh all these stories that normally we wouldn't hear 
about over on this side of the world. And it was great meeting you also at CrimeCon in May. And I look forward to seeing you next year in Chicago. Slubbery hugs and kisses from Canada. Hey Jess, it's Jai from Double Star Collective. Congratulations on your first birthday for the Asian Madness podcast. Hey Jessica, this is Aaron from Red Rum Blonde. And I just wanted to wish you a very happy birthday, happy anniversary, happy podiversary, whatever you want to call it. I just want to give you a big congratulations for a great year, and hopefully there will be many more to come. Hi, this is Minna from True Crime Finland. I wanted to wish Jessica and the Asian Madness podcast a very happy first pod birthday. Yay! Woohoo! I really enjoy listening to this podcast. The episodes are always top-notch and well-researched. Keep up the great work. This is Jennifer from the Fallout Files podcast and the Unequal podcast, wishing Jessica and the Asian Madness podcast a very happy first birthday. Thanks for all you do for all of us out here. Enjoy your day. You just heard Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances and Rev96, a creepypasta podcast. Tanya Todd, who is a very devoted true crime fan from Canada. Jai Smith from the Maker and Creator podcast and a longtime supporter. Aaron Fleming from the podcast Red Rum Blonde. Mina Cavillo from True Crime Finland. And Jennifer from The Fallout Files and The Unequal podcast. Thank you all so much. You guys are too cool for me. Now, let's move on to today's topic. This week's topic is going to be another listener request. This request came to me via email from a listener, Tracy Mann. So, thank you, Tracy, for writing me and for suggesting this case. I sure hope you're still listening, though. Haha. <laughs> this is the case of a double murder that took place in Hong Kong in the year 2014. I admit I had never heard of this case before and upon researching it, quite graphic and quite messed up, as murders tend to be, so proceed with caution. This case involves up to four different countries, where it takes place, where the victims are from, where the killer is from, and another country the killer has ties to. So I hope you all get your maps out so nobody gets lost. This is the murder of two women. 23-year-old Sumardi Ningsi, who also goes by Alice in Hong Kong, and 26-year-old Senang Mujiasi, who also goes by the name Jesse Lorena in Hong Kong. As for the monster behind this, his name is Rurik George Caton Judding. I'll just call him Rurik. Special thanks goes to Andy from the No Remorse podcast for lending me his British, male, 20 to 30s voice. You will hear him speak as Rurik. Let's begin. In the early morning hours of November 1st, 2014, around 3.30 a.m., a man named Rurik had called the Hong Kong police a few times, saying that something had happened in his 31st floor apartment flat. One of his calls asked the police to come investigate. The police, of course, did show up at his apartment and discovered a 12-inch knife, sex toys, cocaine, 
and the body of a woman near death. This would be Jessie Lorena. She had knife wounds to her neck and throat area, and also to her buttocks. Although she was found alive, she would not make it that night. She died soon after the police arrived. Rorick was at the apartment as well, and of course he was arrested immediately. You cannot get away with calling the police, pretty much reporting yourself, and having this scene at your apartment. But that's not all that was found in the apartment. A few hours later, as the police were combing through the apartment, they discovered a large suitcase placed in the balcony. Any guesses as to what was inside the suitcase? Yes, it was a body. It belonged to 23-year-old Smarty Ningsi. Her state of decomposition indicated that she had been dead for a few days already, and she wasn't just dead. Her hands were still tied together behind her back, her body was wrapped with towels, and her head was partially decapitated. What the hell happened? Who were the women murdered? And who was this monster? Let's start with who the victims were. And I apologize for mispronouncing their names. I tried. Samardi Ningsi, also known as Alice, was born on April 22, 1991 in Indonesia. She was married in the year 2008 when she was only 17. And a year later, her husband left her right when she was about to have a baby boy. She first left her home to go to Hong Kong in the year 2011 to work as a domestic helper, as many Indonesians do. They travel overseas to work as domestic helpers, make money, and send money back home. It's a very common line of work in Indonesia. Alice's older sister had also left home to go to work as a domestic helper in Jakarta, Indonesia's capital. For reasons unknown, her sister went missing and no one has heard from her since. What happened to her sister is terrible, and it makes what happened to Alice even worse. She stayed for two years and eight months working in Hong Kong, then returned home to be with her family. She was home for about a year, and during that time she took courses in how to DJ. Pretty cool. She left for Hong Kong again in August of 2014 and arrived on a tourist visa. She was working as a part-time waitress while looking to find work in Hong Kong as a DJ. She was due to return to Indonesia on November 2nd, and as we know, she died only a few days before that was supposed to happen. It was said that she had phoned her family a few days before her death, saying that she felt like she was being haunted by a man named Rurik. He just wouldn't leave her alone. The other victim, Senang Mujiasi, was also known as Jessie Lorena. Her date of birth is unclear, but she was around 26 at the time of her death. She first arrived in Hong Kong in the year 2006, also working as a domestic helper. Her work permit would eventually expire, but she stayed on in Hong Kong, part-timing as a DJ in a club. She would send home around 3000 Hong Kong dollars every two months to help with her family, and that would be a bit less than 400 US dollars. They were working on building a new home, and of course they had a room set up for Jessie Lorena for when she returned, except she was never able to see it herself. Her family was rather isolated and withdrawn. One of the main reasons was that they spoke Javanese, 
and not the local or most common language in Indonesia. It made communicating with their neighbors rather difficult. On the day of her death, her mother recalls that she sensed something was wrong when she saw a group of crows circling her house. Then her neighbor came over to tell her the terrible news. Needless to say, it broke her mother. Please note, whether or not these two women worked as sex workers, I cannot confirm or deny. It's very likely they did from time to time because it was a difficult life, and neither one seemed to have solid work at the time. I am only speculating from the facts of the case, and by no means do I think their behavior caused such a tragedy to happen. Rurik George Caton Judding is a British citizen. He was born in the year 1985. He was around 29 when this all went down. His family was pretty well off and his parents were definitely doting and supportive. He grew up in the county of Surrey, located in southeast England, and his family lived in a Victorian house that had an estimated worth of £1.1 million. Aside from having it all on the outside, he actually had an IQ of 137, which is pretty high. He was admitted into the prestigious Winchester College, an all-boys boarding school for students aged from 13 to 18 when he was 11. His mother was very proud and super excited, but according to his mother, Rurik was offended when she congratulated him on his achievement. Why was he offended? He was angry that his dear mother would dare doubt that he would not be able to get into this school, this £34,000 per year school. The audacity of his mother. It was then again not a surprise when he went on to study law and history in Cambridge University. This guy was doing well, and I truly believe he would have been able to lead a very successful and comfortable life. He was also active in cross-country running, rowing, and football while he was in school. All in all, he seemed very well adjusted. He graduated and was immediately taken in by Barclays in 2008. He was originally looking to work with a U.S. law firm, but the money Barclays was offering him won him over. A couple years later, in 2010, he moved on to work for Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Three years with the company, he was transferred to Hong Kong in 2013. What is interesting is that Rurik's maternal grandmother is actually from Hong Kong, so in a sense, he was returning to his grandmother's homeland. According to co-workers, he was a fit young man with a brilliant mind at first, but after moving to Hong Kong, he quickly went into a downward spiral, gained a lot of weight, became suicidal, and a self-proclaimed insane psychopath. It was said that he made very questionable decisions at work, which is why he was sent off to Hong Kong. His work consisted of, I quote directly, tax minimization trades that are under scrutiny from prosecutors, regulators, tax collectors, and the bank's own compliance department. I don't speak bank language, so that is a direct quote. I have no idea what I just said. So if you speak bank language, then you probably understand. But before he moved to Hong Kong, though, there was someone special in Rurik's life when he was in Barclays in London. 
He met a woman by the name of Sarah Butt while working in Barclays, and the two became an item. Sarah worked briefly in PricewaterhouseCoopers and Barclays Capital before moving on to Goldman Sachs. She was sent to work in New York for about a year, and during that time, she allegedly cheated on Rorick by kissing another man, which caused the couple to break up. Rorick was very devastated, and the couple tried to get back together and work out their issues in 2012. They even got engaged. Rorick was never able to fully get over their problems and the betrayal, so he broke off the engagement soon after. I wonder if the words, dodge that bullet, ever crossed Sarah's mind. During Rurik's years in Hong Kong, he made frequent weekend trips to Angela's city in the Philippines. Angela's meaning angels, I suppose. This city is also known as Sin City, mostly because it's famous for its nightlife activities and is an ideal place for sex tourists. Rurik first began making trips to Angela City in the spring of 2014. I suppose he fell in love with what the city offered a man like himself, so he began to make weekend trips. It's fairly close, less than two hours on a plane. One thing you should know, though, is that the Philippines is a relatively poverty-stricken place and hella cheap for people from the West. Rurik made a lot of money and he could literally get anything he wanted. His trips usually went like this. He would hit up a bar, order lots of drinks, and be surrounded by bar girls. Once he felt that the party was over, he would then pay those in charge, usually older women called mama-sons, and take the girls back to his hotel for another party. He would bring as many as eight women back in a go. The accounts of what they did inside the hotel room is different according to each person, so I can't really be sure. Some say he had sex with all the girls, and some say they just cuddled, ate, drank, and, you know, slept. He was a catch in Angela City, though. I mean, I could see why. He was rich, nice, and he seemed to come off as a gentleman to these girls. Looks-wise, well, it's in the eye of the beholder, so I can't comment on that. But I know no one ever mentioned his good looks. Except maybe a girlfriend. Many articles described him as fat and overweight, and one of his girlfriends said she liked him fat, and quote, I wanted him to get bigger and bigger so I wouldn't lose him, end quote. I have many issues with that comment, but that's irrelevant to this case. Eventually, he began dating one of the girls he met at the bar, a woman by the name of Ariane Guarin and apparently all the other girls were jealous of her. But things did not work out between them, and after breaking up, he began to see another woman from the same area, Joanna Mendoza. Mendoza was quoted as saying the following, quote, We would stay with him for three days at a time. We were very happy and felt very lucky we had met Rurik, and that he paid our bar fines even though we did nothing but eat and sleep and drink. If you ask any of the girls who stayed with him at the ABC hotel, they will tell you Rorick was a good guy, end quote. Joanna is a girlfriend who liked him big, by the way. Rorick had given his ex-girlfriend, Ariane, a monthly allowance of about 9,000 Hong Kong dollars, which is roughly 1,150 US dollars. He began to do the same for Joanna once they got together, 
I imagine that would be enough money for an entire household to live comfortably. Joanna commented on their relationship as saying, quote, I slept with him. The sex was good, and there was nothing unusual about it. Rurik was very sweet. He is a good lover. We had good times together, not only the sex. There's a crap load of other accounts regarding their short-lived relationship. It's just too much and I don't think it will add any more to the story, so I'm going to skip all that. Long story short, or too long didn't read, Rurik went to Angela City a lot for sex, ended up having two rather meaningful relationships, but both ended. He was always nice, kind, and never rude or aggressive towards the girls. Joanna never saw Rurik use drugs either. Joanna was supposed to go to Hong Kong and visit Rurik around late October, but before that could happen, Rurik broke up with her via email. His reason was that he was too busy at the time, and he had no plans of visiting the Philippines anytime soon. Okay, first of all, breaking up with someone via email is a little rude, especially when you can just call them. But then again, we're talking about Rurik. Joanna accepted it, and that was that. She said she was very sad and that she really loved him, but she always felt like things would come to an end between them. It's time we move on to what led to the murders, the phone call to the police, and the discovery. Rurik had become more and more obsessed with rape, violence, and shaming women during sex. His porn search history was mostly violent themes, and he was set to push boundaries with ex-girlfriends. I guess his appetite continued to grow. He met his first victim, Alice, around early October in a bar in Wan Chai. They agreed to head over to a hotel for sex. Rurik got so physically violent and rough with her, she demanded to leave, allegedly refunding him half the amount he had given her. But three weeks later, on October 25th, Rurik wanted her to meet him again, and she kept telling him no. I think this is what she meant when she told her family she felt like she was being haunted by Rurik. He badgered her and eventually offered her a huge amount of cash, around 1,000 US dollars. For someone who desperately needed money, this was the perfect bait. He had issues and he knew how to control her. He preyed on her needs and her weaknesses. She agreed to this and went to see him on October 25th. As you know, she would leave the apartment in a suitcase days later. The following details would be quite graphic, so you decide if you need to keep listening. Rurik lived in a fancy apartment building called the J Residence, and the 400-square-foot one-bedroom unit costs about 25,000 Hong Kong dollars per month, which is a little bit more than 3,000 US dollars. It is located in a very nice and safe neighborhood. As soon as she arrived, which was a Saturday, Rurik began to rape and torture the girl. He used pliers, sex toys, and the belt to torture her. He wanted to make her his sex slave, so he kept making her do things that were very extreme, which included eating feces out of the toilet. He held her against her will inside his apartment for three days, and on the third day, October 27th, he ordered Alice to kneel in front of the toilet bowl and lick it. As she was doing it, Rurik came up behind her and slit her throat over the toilet bowl as he whispered, I love you. She did not die immediately, 
So he moved her to the bathtub, where he continued to use a knife to cut into her neck. I can't be sure if he wanted to experience killing or he wanted to put her out of her misery, but I leaned towards him wanting to satisfy his sick fantasies. She was nearly decapitated in the bathtub. He was very excited about what had happened too. He used his iPhone to record a 20-minute video showing him topless and unshaven. He also videoed Alice lying dead in the bathtub. He was on camera saying the following. My name is Rurik Jutting. About five minutes ago, I just killed, murdered this woman here. I just killed someone. First person I ever killed. I cut her throat in the bathroom. To be precise, I cut her throat while she was bending over licking the dirty toilet bowl. I treated her as a non-person, a sex object, and that turned me on. I urinated in her mouth. I made her eat feces and vomit. I made her do drugs. I have never seen anyone that scared. She voluntarily ate feces out of the toilet and just smiled at me afterwards. I urinated in her mouth. She threw up and I made her eat her own vomit. He also threatened to cut off her nipples and forced his fist into her genitals. This is so disgusting and appalling and I hate his face. After all this, he wrapped her body in towels and stuffed it into a large black suitcase and left it on the balcony. I suppose he knew better than to go around dumping a body in Hong Kong since there's people everywhere. But that's not all. He was not about to stop and his hunger and need for excitement was out of control, especially when he was high on drugs. Days later, on October 31st, he decided he needed some more excitement. He first visited a sex shop and bought some sex toys and, you know, ropes and stuff. Then he visited a hardware store to get a lot of questionable items, such as tape, pliers, a hammer, a blowtorch, you know, the usual. He hid some weapons and a gag underneath his sofa, and after he was ready, he left to go hunting. That night, which was Halloween night, he met a woman named Jessie Lorena in the new Makati pub and disco in Wan Chai and asked her to leave with him. Before leaving the pub, Jessie Lorena had told her friend, a DJ named Robert Vandenbosch, that she was off to a party. She was never seen alive again. She actually did go to a party and eventually went home with Rurik. As soon as she arrived at his apartment in the early hours of November 1st, she noticed there was a horrible smell in the apartment. She even texted a friend saying something smelled horrible and that she wanted to leave. Soon, the two began to make out on the sofa. Jesse Lorena felt something strange underneath the sofa and soon found the items Rurik had hidden there. She got very agitated and started yelling at him, but he quickly pulled out a knife and began to stab her. He stabbed her in the neck repeatedly until she stopped screaming. Things clearly did not work out as he had planned. He wanted to keep her as his sex slave, but she was now a dead person in his living room. He used up the rest of the drugs he had and started to hallucinate. He saw the door handles turning and he was convinced that the so-called ninja police were on his balcony trying to get in. 
because he somehow felt that the police already were coming to him, he decided to make several calls to 999, which is the emergency call number. He requested for police officers because, quote, something had happened. That is the understatement of the year. He also called his boss, which is strange. I would never think of calling my boss at this hour or when I'm in trouble, but maybe they were really close. Well, he called his boss before the police arrived, telling his boss that he was in big trouble. No shit. Oh, and did I mention, Rurik took leave from work the days following up to the second murder and changed his out-of-office email response to, for urgent inquiries or indeed any inquiries, please contact someone who is not an insane psychopath. I wonder how his clients felt when they saw this auto-reply. When the police arrived, he was rambling and half-naked, still high on drugs and covered in blood. Police immediately arrested him. I've said this before about East Asia, and I'll say it again. Hong Kong is a relatively safe place. Things like this don't usually happen. Yes, they do happen from time to time, but usually not to this extent. Rurik was very forthcoming and admitted to murdering both women. He did not try to hide the photos and videos he had taken. He was high on drugs when he was committing the crimes, and he felt that by using drugs, he could not feel fear, and it sort of motivated him to, I guess, chase his dreams and not think of the consequences. Two to four psychiatric evaluations were done on Rurik because it was necessary to understand his state of mind. The results all came back with a similar result. He had narcissistic personality disorder, but he was deemed mentally fit to stand trial. The trial took place on November 8, 2016. The jury consisted of five men and four women. The defense, of course, argued for diminished responsibility because of all his mental disorders and addiction issues to drugs and alcohol. They wanted manslaughter, not murder. Rurik then brought up bits and pieces of his past, claiming that he was abused at school and that he was forced to perform oral sex on a boy. He also said he witnessed his father attempt suicide once. The defense used his claims to explain why Rurik became whatever he became. Then the jury members were also asked to look at all the photos of the two victims, watch the videos that Rurik took of himself rambling on and on about how wonderful he felt after killing the woman. I imagine it was very stressful and painful having to sit there and go through all that information. Thank God, though, the jury saw through everything and made up their minds quite quickly. They found Rurik guilty of two counts of murder. He would be sentenced to life imprisonment in Hong Kong. Rurik's defense team believed that the judge was biased, which led the jury to be biased. How about Rurik's own actions caused all the bias? Seriously, people suck at taking responsibility for their own actions. After his fate was determined in court, Rurik stated that he did not wish to appeal his conviction and that he accepted it wholeheartedly. He said the following. As has been commented throughout the hearings, my actions in respect to the death of Samarti Nagesh and Seneng Mujesh 
and my actions in the days preceding the death of Samarati Ningesh were horrific, even by the standard of homicide trials. Despite this, I observed the nine jurors were attentive and thoughtful throughout. They delivered a verdict that I cannot and will not have an objection. I am aware that I not only have two life sentences, but also a very low probability of release in parole, even in the long distant future. I accept this as just an appropriate judgement. I remain haunted daily, both by the actions, both by the memory of my actions to Samarti, Ningesh and Sengang Mujaish, and by the knowledge of the acute pain I have caused to their loved ones, not least Samarti Ningesh, young son, now motherless. The evil I have inflicted can never be remedied by me in words or actions. Nevertheless, for whatever it may be worth, to Samarti Ningesh's family and friends, to Seneng Mujesh family and friends, I am sorry. I am sorry beyond words. Rurik tried to find ways to get himself sent back to the UK so he could serve his sentence there instead of in Hong Kong. That did not work out, so that's good. I would hate it if anything went his way. And then, sometime last year, in 2017, Rurik decided to appeal his conviction, something he said he wasn't interested in doing. Liar. He tried to appeal twice, and both times the Court of Appeals took one glance at it and were like, dude, nah, rejected. I hope he rots in prison. Rurik's parents and younger brother all visit the monster in Hong Kong regularly, and his parents are now divorced. It was said that his parents have had marital problems in the past, but it just might be their son's actions that finally had them signing divorce papers. None of Rurik's family members attended the trial. When Rurik's classmates and ex-co-workers heard of this, everyone was surprised. They were asked to describe how he was when they knew him. A former classmate at Walla Prep School described him as a quiet kid and not very popular. Kind of a strange kid. His classmates at Winchester College and from Cambridge recalled that he was sharp and bright, more of a leader than a follower, but definitely arrogant. One classmate said the following, He had a sort of controlled poise and a certain understated smugness, a sort of superior air, but lightly worn. He seemed quite detached. I would never have described him as affable. Some people questioned whether his breakup with his girlfriend from London changed him, but come on. If that were the case, we would have sadistic, psycho assholes murdering people left and right. Do not blame her. What he did is on him. His murder apartment is said to still be unoccupied, and knowing how superstitious Asians are, I have strong doubts that anyone will want to move in anytime soon. The owner also knows it's not a good idea to sell right now because they will have to sell it for cheap. Well, I can't imagine some people wanting to move in, mostly because they either have no idea of what happened, or they want to live in a murder apartment so they can maybe experience weird shit. Because of this man's inability to control his urges, two families lost a daughter, a sister, 
and also a mother. Ningxi's son was only five when she was killed, and I believe he probably does not remember much about her. The two families live in poverty in Indonesia, and the two women worked hard away from friends and family to help provide for them. Regardless of whether they were sex workers or not, they did not deserve this treatment or to die like this. Groups of migrant workers from the Asian Migrants Coordinating Body protested during the trial of Rorik Jutting. They saw two of their own as victims, as women disrespected, as migrant workers disrespected by a man with money and power. In an interview with Jesse Lorena's family, her mother said, I have a strong sense of regret. If she had not left for Hong Kong, she might still be alive, even without food. At least we would be together. So, there you have it. The sadistic, torturous, and disgusting murders of two women who did not deserve any of it. I honestly hope Rurik's appeals never go through, and he will continue to live in prison knowing that he is hated by everybody. I don't think he is truly remorseful because he went back on his own words. For someone as bright as he is, it's probably not very difficult to come up with words along the lines of, I'm terrible and I am so sorry. Putting meaning in those words, now that's a different thing. Please stay safe out there. Avoid any dangerous situations, but more importantly, don't ever intentionally cause danger to anyone. So this episode concludes my October podcast birthday whatever thing. I gave it too many different names. I don't remember what it is anymore. Thank you to everybody who participated in this month's episodes, whether you listened, wished me a happy pod birthday, or sent me a recording. Anything. I am very grateful and humbled. A couple of updates, though. I have changed my podcast release from the usual Fridays to Mondays. I recently moved and started working a new job, so things are a lot busier. This way, I can get the whole entire weekend to record and edit without stressing myself out. Of course, I would hate to do crappy research and leave you with a terrible podcast. I hope you guys understand. Second update, I will be taking a short break. At the moment, I'm thinking of two weeks, or maybe three. I just need some time to recharge my podcast fuel, plan out my next episodes, and hopefully get ahead. I will be releasing Patreon episodes in the meantime. So, there's that. I will be back though, because this podcast is my little baby and I am much happier with it than without it. On to shoutouts. Thank you to Tomas de la Morte from the US for the very kind review. I always appreciate kind words, so if you're feeling kind, go for it. I would also like to thank one of my best friends from high school, Mana Omotani, for becoming a Patreon member. She's also my Chicago connection, so every time I go to the US, I shamelessly crash at her place. So, thanks dude! One final thank you to everybody. I will be back soon. So, till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. Please help me by rating, reviewing this podcast. If you're on social media, please look for me under the handle Asian Madness Pod. If you have any comments or suggestions, do not hesitate to write me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. 
I truly appreciate each and every one of you for being here. I am your host, Jessica. Till next time.